Welcome back to the Four Idle Hands podcast. War, Terry, what is it good for? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Das Vadania, my our friend Putin. Now, before we start talking about Putin, I was thinking last night, I wonder what would have happened if Trump had been president. Uh, yeah, well, th- that is a very good question and leads me on to a very good article by Simon Cooper in last week's Financial Times on the Saturday. And uh, he uh, talks about a, uh, an American diplomat who is based in Moscow writing home about uh, uh, the country, a guy called George Kennan, uh, who said that uh, the Kremlin's core belief was that a hostile West would collapse under its own contradictions. <laughs> Russian rulers, he wrote, saw the outside world as bearing within itself germs of creeping disease and destined to be racked with growing internal convulsions. And uh, he he talks about um, um, uh, the you know how their collapse could be hastened by Russia by stimulating all forms of disunity in the West. Uh, Poor will be set against rich, black against white, young against old, newcomers against established residents, etc. He wrote this in 1946. Wow. And it sounds like something that um, uh, Vladimir Putin may well have read (laughs) back in the day. So, uh, yes, uh, the bad news that um, Putin has invaded Ukraine. I mean, I was thinking about that again this morning. I was thinking that, you know, he's got, you know, you look at the West, now you've got Biden, a bit miserable. You've got Boris Johnson in trouble. You've got a new president or a new chancellor in Germany. So maybe he thinks now's the time that the West is the weakest and he can get away with it. I, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's a two-pronged attack, really. He probably wouldn't have tried this when uh, Angela Merkel was about because uh, she had a, an innate understanding of um, communism and uh, how countries um, can can collapse. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. she would have been very wary of him. And um, you've obviously got Biden who who comes across a bit weak on foreign policy. And um, I think that this might also be intended to destabilize Biden's um, Mm -hmm. attempts at regaining the door for Trump. Definitely. But it's not all Russia this week. What else are we going to talk about, Michael? Yeah, uh, we have got a varied um, lineup for you this week. We have a fantastic interview with uh, Pierce Turner all the way from New York. He's got a new album, Terrible Good, which is out uh, tomorrow, Friday the 25th. And uh, we'll be reviewing that as well. We've got um, the sad departure of Mark Lanigan. Yeah. Uh, from this mortal coil, um, Six Nations rugby. We've got reviews of uh, the new crime bin and Leon Bridges collaboration. And uh, we're also going to be talking about the newly announced Connect Festival lineup. And uh, The Godfather is 50. So we're going to have a bit of chat about that later as well. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so uh, very sad about Martin Lanigan, obviously. Yeah, uh, I mean, he is a man who's uh, led many lives. And uh, I suppose if you'd been told 10 years ago that that uh, he'd passed away, you probably would have uh, just shrugged your shoulders and said, well, well, that's to be expected. But uh, he, he appeared to be one of, um, uh, you know, Rock's survivors. Uh, unfortunately, he'd had a, 
um, bad experience with COVID, which hospitalized him in Ireland um, last year. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think everything's kind of caught up in him in a way, but uh, there have been some glowing tributes yeah. um, to him, not just for his songwriting and, and performance, but um, also he's a fantastic writer. I mean, his uh, memoir, Sing Backwards and Weep, which came out a couple of years ago, is, you know, no holds bar um, truth. Mm-hmm. About, um, uh, addiction and falling out with people, and uh, it's it, it, it's a very entertaining read um, and tinge of sadness now that he's gone, unfortunately. Did it say what he died of, or was it just a combination of things? Uh, the, the, there's no no indication, but uh, he he'd, uh, obviously had a bad experience with COVID and had been hospitalised uh, in Ireland for a very long time. So I, I, I don't know, he was 57 years and, and pretty high mileage model, I think it'd be fair to say. Yeah. Uh, I did meet him once, Terry. Wow. After... Uh, uh, after a gig at the Lemon Tree, he signed a few bits of bumps. So I've got a, a signed print of his, and um, uh, I just said what a fantastic gig it was, and, uh, and you know, left it at that. And I just got what we described as somewhere between a grunt and a growl as a response. <laughs> was he solo, or was it as part of a band, or was it? Uh, he was with uh, Duke Garwood um, uh, and uh, band, so it, it, it was uh, like a. Um, uh, electric performance, if you know what I mean, in more ways than one. So he played the Lemon Tree, it must have been about uh, 2016, I think. He has played uh, in Aberdeen a couple of times in recent years. He's been pretty prolific in terms of churning out solo albums. And he's one of these guys whose uh, output just improved as he got older. Yeah. He, he did great collaborations with the likes of Isabel Campbell, that a lot of people yeah. will, will probably know from. My knowing of him was through Screaming Trees, obviously, I got the early 90s kind of grunge bands and so on, and uh, didn't listen much beyond that. But certainly, I was a big fan of Screaming Trees and uh, over the years, and they nearly lost you and so on. But yeah, so it is a bit sad. And yeah, I mean, he was yeah, 57, it's not, not old like so. Yeah, he's one of these guys who, who probably as an artist who'll be uh, appreciated more in, you know, after his passing, really, mm-hmm. than uh, perhaps, you know, being recognised when he was alive in the mainstream anyway. So, uh, so I mean, yeah, I, mean, I don't think I've listened to them much recently. I, I, would listen, I would listen to yesterday, you know, you think people like his peers would have been, you know, Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and so on. But uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Eddie Vedder obviously talk about it today as well. So very sad indeed, sir. Yeah, um, sort of moving on to uh, matters uh, slightly more optimistic. There's been uh, this morning the announcement of, uh, well, last night, the announcement of the bill for the new Connect Festival in um, Edinburgh. Terry, anything float your boat there? Yeah, I saw that actually. I mean, it's quite a good lineup. You know, Chemical Brothers and Mobwire playing, the National are going to the headline, I think, on the it's a three day thing over the kind of was it the August Park holiday weekend, I think. So um, at the Royal Ingleston, I assume it's outside, so it's not going to be yeah. there, is it? But there's, there's quite a substantial list of bands playing, that's for sure. Well, I mean, if you look at the... It, it is. And, I mean, they do have um, the uh, large hold there as well that they could, uh, I guess, have a second stage kind of set up at. But uh, I think that'll be a popular lineup. Massive Attacker headlining on the Friday night as well. So, um, yeah, it's good to see, like... Um, uh, ahead, um, starting to uh, appear on the horizon. But I think I, I got the impression there's been a few things I've noticed recently that there's more and more 
over the summer festivals and things happen, it's obviously outside, so you know the whole COVID thing is obviously a bit easier. Um, but I, I just I get the impression all these bands are just running to put on events, or people are just you know, and bands are going everywhere as much as possible, you know, just because they can. I guess is the whole thing. But my main thought was I would perhaps prefer to go somewhere a bit warmer for to stand outside for three days, but um, maybe Primavera sure. in Barcelona or something. But uh, yeah. Uh, somewhere that's going to be quite cold this uh, Saturday is Murrayfield and uh, we've got the return of the Six Nations and uh, I guess there'll probably be quite a few French travelling optimistically um, for, for the game against Scotland this weekend, Terry. I would think the French would be very optimistic this weekend. And it's always actually quite, it's always quite a good atmosphere, um, the French game. There's always loads of French people turn up who are, live in Scotland or, or travel from London or France. But I really can't see Scotland getting a result on this one, though. I mean, I could be wrong, but... I mean, France, I mean, France didn't play, they played well against Ireland at the start, but they did fade a bit. So there is hope for Scotland, I guess. I don't know, I don't know what you think. but uh... Yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced that the, the French are fantastic uh, travellers. You know, they definitely um, uh, are a formidable team to play against at uh, Stade uh, de France, but um, they are a bit more vulnerable away. It's you know it's shaping up to be pretty cold. We've got a wee bit of snow on the ground here. In um, uh, I can't imagine it's going to be ideal conditions from the French point of view if they're having to rub their hands instead of uh, uh, you know being able to dance around the place uh, with, with uh, their usual no. attacking prowess. No, it's a, it's a good. It's an early start. It's about early, so it's two o'clock kick off on Saturday. So yeah, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think I think hopefully it's got to get a good start. Scotland need to win, having lost against Wales. And you know, I don't know if Wales would be would be favoured against England. It's up twicking them as well. So I don't I don't see that going any other any other way other than England, I think. So um, but you know, Scotland could beat France. England, uh, Wales. I think that'll be a, a... On we go. That that'll be a meaty enough contest, I, th- I think the um, England Wales one. Um, uh, I mean Wales will uh, I, I think have um, uh, taken a bit of comfort from beating Scotland and uh, I think they will maybe look at last year's uh, uh, tournament when they lost the first game and went on to uh, to win it yeah. so who knows so so my plan on Saturday is to watch the in-person Scotland France I'm recording the England Wales game and the whole idea is that we get back to Aberdeen without getting the score. So basically, I'm going to have to turn my phone off, keep the radio, well, even the radio, I'm going to have to, have to give the radio a mess or something, or maybe just play some music on the phone, but trying to avoid the score and then watch it recorded about seven o'clock. Yeah, well, I, I do this regularly, uh, Terry. I just go into media blackout when I'm, I'm driving down the road on Saturday evening. I have the, the machine set to, uh, to record the rugby and nobody tells me anything, so it's great. Yeah, you'd have been, sorry, a bit of a dig here, which was unscripted, but you'd have been in a media blackout last Saturday when Spurs beat Man City, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, the less said about that, the better, although I hear this morning but, that... But, uh, but you know what's interesting, though? Um, obviously, six days this weekend, so on Sunday, it's Ireland against Italy in, in Dublin. And the TV broadcasters have obviously decided that the, the Sunday games are the low television audience because they always seem to stick Italy on a Sunday. I think that's a bit yeah. of a game, actually. So. It, it is. Uh, just going back to Spurs briefly there, I hear that uh, Conte is asking to meet with uh, Daniel Levy. Uh, um, he, he's not happy, I think, probably because they haven't done much business in the uh, 
transfer market, uh, and uh, I could see him going uh, before too long, which is fantastic news for non-Spurs fans like me. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess a, a link back to our first story with Russia is that the Champions League final, the favourite location for it now apparently is the Spurs uh, stadium. Oh, no, 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 no. So Anywhere but there. <laughs> so Man City could end up playing at Spurs in the Champions League final, which I think is almost certainly moved from St. Petersburg immediately, I think. I can't imagine that being going ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't either. Okay, Terry, uh, well, we've got a long interview with um, uh, our uh, friend in New York, uh, Pierce Turner, to bring to you now. Um, Pierce's got a new album coming out uh, tomorrow, which is Terrible Good. That's the name of it, and that's what it is. Here's our chat with Pierce. We have got a very uh, special guest from the other side of the Atlantic. It's only a long way across, Pierce, to New York City. You're very welcome to the Four Idle Hands podcast. I'm delighted to, to be here with you guys, or to be there with you guys. I think this is our second transatlantic one. The last one was in Cincinnati, so you're in New York, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, well, good. So, yeah, it's a little so, bit more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> So, Pierce, you're from Wexford, which for those who don't... Pierce. Oh, sorry. So, you're from Wexford, which is a very small sort of town southwest of Dublin, and, and I understand your parents ran a record shop, but, but what kind of stuff did you listen to? You know, was it influenced by them at the time, or was it just what was on the radio um, back when you were a young lad, like so? Um, well, uh, the thing is, you know, about working in a record shop when you're young, I don't know if you guys did that or not, but... Uh, you know, I was very young. I was 15 when I was working in the record shop. And uh, um, uh, it means you're going to be introduced to every kind of music. And, and you know, you're sitting around with all these things around you. So I listened to everything, you know, I mean, really to the, to the point of the ridiculous, you know, like My Fair Lady to Velvet Underground. You know, that's the, the I'm, I'm, I was just curious about everything. Uh, because you know it was there on the shelf, and I just I wonder what the hell that's like. You know, it's like uh, uh, I wasn't too happy with my fair lady. It was a bit disappointing. I, I, it wasn't. I think it was. It was like Broadway version or something. It was like I don't know. But uh, Michael McLeanmore and things like you know spoken word. So all that stuff influenced me. My favorite things, I suppose, were like. Not that abnormal, really. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones, the Beach Boys, um, uh, the Beatles, obviously. Um, um, then, um, uh, the, uh, I don't know, David Bowie. You know, it's a, it's a really wide range of stuff. Um, and I can't put my finger on these. Uh, Bob Dylan uh, was a major influence as well. Um, um, everything influences you when you're in that kind of an environment, and uh, it's probably to your, it's probably to my detriment in some ways because you know I can't really hone in on one style of music completely. Okay. I don't believe. I know, I know, I know. When I was younger, my my parents were really into sort of country music, so there'd always be uh, well Jim Reeves and Johnny Cash on on the on the on the record deck and stuff. And I listened to a lot of that when I was younger, so. I do yeah. have a love of still still of country music to a point, and um, but uh, obviously my taste move on beyond that. But uh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, and I, I was surrounded by something else. It's 
detrimental to you being a focused artist. And that was show bands. They were, they were, you know, as a teenager, I was going to see show bands and their, their whole thing was to copy everybody else perfectly, you know. Um, so yeah, I heard country and Western. I didn't like country and Western unless it was real country and Western, unless it was Johnny Cash. Yeah. I found, you know, you know, I liked Johnny Cash and uh, I sort of like, didn't like, um, you know, the fake one. Um, I, I like Patsy Cline, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that certainly had an influence on me. Uh, uh, that, that kind of singing had a big influence on me. Okay, cool, cool. Michael, yeah, yeah, and um, you played instruments in youth as well, uh, Pierce. I mean, I think you played the the tin whistle, and then you were involved in a brass and uh, reed band. I think before you you got your first um, uh, sort of paying gig. And the other thing that I think you were involved in, uh, in uh, as a child uh, was. Um, uh, church choirs. Uh, I mean, you certainly allude to that in um, uh, you, you Could Never Know uh, with your uh, lyric about um, being a boy soprano. Um, did, did you discover your voice at that point or um, was it a dawning realisation that, that um, you, you were going to be a singer? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was how I discovered that I, that, that was my voice. The beginning of, you know, I sang from a very early age. Because I come from a musical family, you know, obviously. So I, I sang from the word go almost, you know. My my mother played the accordion in her own band. So when she played the accordion, I was in the womb. <laughs> so music music started that early for me. Um, but when it came to singing as a joy, you know, it was really for in choirs and church and school. Uh, you know, I just loved it. Whereas I sort of didn't like anything else. I didn't like you know, math and I didn't like, I wasn't interested in school at all. But the minute they gave me any kind of music thing, you know, it, it flew. Uh, even the tin whistle I liked. Uh, and I found myself writing tunes on the tin whistle. Um, and then the brass and reed band was a bit more of a torturous experience, really, because. My mother, as I said, was a band leader and she insisted on making me join things that I didn't want to do, you know, like, like the Brass and Reed Band, which I joined when I was nine. And um, it, it, the age group of the band would have been somewhere between nine and 70. So, you know, um, standing in line, you know, if you wanted to go to the toilet for a pee before you went out on a parade, you couldn't get into the bathroom because it was filled with men putting powder on their teeth, you know, to, so that their teeth wouldn't fall out. <laughs> oh, I mean, one thing I read about was that your, your first professional gig was a, a show band called The Arrows. I mean, Michael's from, from Monaghan and I'm from, from Oma. So, I mean, show bands were, were very popular in the dance halls in the 80s. But, I mean, what kind of stuff would you play with them, though? Well, I was in... A pop band, <laughs> pop band. Okay, right, right. which meant we were a little bit better, supposedly. Right, really bullshit, but you know that's what we thought, you know. And um, so you know we did whatever was in the English charts, you know, right. or the American charts, you know. But mostly what was in the English charts, and right. the whole key to it was to learn if the minute it got into the charts, 
And, right. you know, you, you must have the number one and all that. But we we were a harmony band. We, we had we had like uh, eight members and everybody sang very well. Right. So we had really, we, we could reproduce things like good vibrations and stuff like that, which we did, you know. Um, I, I was the youngest member of this band. These guys were pretty seasoned, even though they weren't that old. You know, they were only... In, they were only, I suppose, about 25 or 24, but they were superb musicians. Um, and I always, I always thought like that show bands was kind of the only thing you could do when you're in a small town in Ireland was, you know, if you wanted to be a professional musician, you know, you couldn't form a, a group, a four piece group, because there wasn't a drummer in the town that was good enough or a bass player. In the, Let's say, just as an example, getting four people that were world class in a small town was very hard to get. You might be able to get four accordion players that were world class, but getting drums, bass, guitar, keyboard was nearly impossible. So your only choice was to go to Dublin and join a professional band. And that meant, you know, uh, I auditioned for like uh, groups I got and I was able to get into them, but they had no money. And so I joined the show band because I wanted to be a professional musician. Uh, but but they, they were incredibly popular. I remember my sister taking me to watch show bands and I was just amazed by what was going on. But um, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. You go on. Well, it's just, uh, I was just going to say there, uh, they, they were in the kind of a phenomenon, really, because it trained you so well to be in this situation. You know, I mean, a band starts now and they don't, you know, people, they start performing and they have no training at all. I'm not saying they should have training, but I'm just saying the training had its advantages too. In, in that, for instance, like you had your keyboard and you had your amplifier and the guitarist had his own amplifier and everyone had their own amplifier the drums weren't amplified so we had to mix ourselves on stage and it, and you know we it, we it was in front of 2000 people every time you played so you couldn't be messing around you had to, it had to be actually perfect and uh, you were performing five nights a week so uh i didn't make much money but i know the management made a lot of money uh, of course um, but you know, so like when I like when I'm in hard luck situations ever through my life, where maybe something goes wrong with the monitors or something, and I'm up on the stage or one of the things break down, I don't give a shit. I just plow right through it because <laughs> I was in a show. Oh, well. yeah. uh, I mean, it sounds. It sounds to me, uh, Pierce, like you're probably at the more sort of um, edgy end of the uh, show band uh, kind of roster of uh, acts. I mean, you know, to me, it was well, certainly, you know, by the time it was dying a death in the uh, 80s, it was all, you know, acts with cowboy hats and phony uh, yeah. mid-Atlantic singing voices. And I mean, I mean, it is curious the way that things turn around, isn't it? I mean, you hear a lot yeah. of our singers now expressing their accents in a pretty uncomfortable compromise and fashion you know if you, you consider Damien Dempsey or Grant Chatton out of Fontaine's DC that they, they'd spring to mind but but um did you always uh, sing with your your accent I mean you're you're very obviously a Wexford man when you sing if you know what I mean 
I don't really know, to be honest, Michael, because, you know, you know, there are no recordings or videos or anything of that period. I don't know if I assumed the accent of somebody else when I sang a song or not, you know. It's possible, isn't it? You know, as, a, as an impressionable teenager that I might have taken on the voice that I was imitating, you know. I don't really know. Uh, but I certainly never made, it, uh, made, it, made that the priority uh, in, in what I was doing. And, and I wasn't aware of accents at all. I can't remember being having any consciousness of that. And, and it always it strikes me as odd when people are obsessed with, the, you know, uh, that you can't sing. Like there, there, there's an obsession with that you must sing with an, an American accent. There's an obsession with that that's fascinating. I don't really... I really can't get over that. You know, it's like, uh, I remember people complaining when people sang with a Cockney accent. And I remember thinking, you know, <laughs> why? You know, it's, it's, it sounds great to me. Why bother? Why bother? What's bothering you? Um, and, I, I, and I didn't really notice the Rolling Stones were singing with an American accent when I heard, you know. So I'm not terribly aware of all that stuff. Um, oh. But I do know that when you're singing you must have your own voice you must well, have your I, own voice. I used to work a lot in scandinavia in norway and norway was very a lot of metal rock bands and when you went to see them in the small towns in norway they were singing with this kind of west coast california bon jovi accent which was very off-putting and even in between songs they would speak like that and then you'd speak to them afterwards and it'd be scandinavian like how you'd expect and but they had this California, hey man, and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. that is, look, that's that, this kind of stuff happens a lot. Uh, when I was with Beggars Banquet, there there was a band there that like that, that just that, I can't remember what they were called now, and they had this really raucous kind of sort of metal cowboy sound, uh, you know, with you know. Like, <laughs> Lots of smoke machines and everything. And when the singer sang, it was like that kind of thing. And then I met him backstage afterwards, and he said, "Hello, Mike." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there, there is a school of motoring, you know, where you put on when you perform, you put on a voice, and it seems to work for some people. I, you know, it's you know, I, yeah. I don't know how, but it seems to. Yeah. I think you were encouraged, Pierce, uh, to go to New York by your friend uh, Larry Kerwin, who, who'd been been there for for a while. Um, having come from a relatively small town like Wexford, the place must have made some impression on you when you went there first. Uh, it was shocking. It really was. In many ways, it it, it like completely. I was just. I was. I was almost twenty two when I came here, and. Uh, when you, from my point of view, I was starting all over again, you know, and, and even though I was only in a show band in Ireland, Larry and I had, were signed to Polydor Records as a duo as well in Ireland. So while I was in the show band, I was recording this very avant-garde kind of stuff, a song called We Have No More Babies Left came out as a single, and it was like, uh, you know, we were doing, we, we were also writing kind of poppy stuff, but we were doing kind of avant-garde stuff as well. And um, uh, so it, we had reached a point where we were starting to gain ground, you know, and I was making a living as a musician. 
came to New York and I was starting all over again from, from scratch uh, and having no understanding of how it all worked at all, you know. Uh, and and it, it, with the opposite sex, it was, a, it was a real problem as well because I had no idea how to speak to American women because their whole method was completely <laughs> different. It was like they'd ask you out, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they do all the work. Yeah, like the first first gig I had. I don't know. Can I curse on here? Yeah. <laughs> the first gig I had with Larry, this woman came up and says, "Do you want to fuck to me?" And I'm like, ah. <laughs> I, 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 I was a hobbit, a hobbit. I couldn't speak. It was so. Uh, so it was a very different, you know, culturally, it was very different. It was shocking, really. And it, it must have taken, I think it took me at least two years to adjust. Is that not what Wexford is like on a Saturday night as well, though? <laughs> Women's up here, maybe. <laughs> I would imagine that's what it's like. Maybe not. I mean, certainly Oma was maybe a bit like that. Not much. But... I mean, it probably oh, is really? military. You must, well, I grew up with the system that, like, you know, you, you don't, you, it's all a big mystery. It's like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you know, can you smell me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, isn't, or, you know, it's like, we don't, do we have to speak? And then if there was any sex, no speaking during the sex. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Pierce, uh, when, when you did start playing music in um, uh, in New York, when you got there, um, you, you were kind of um, in a position where uh, playing to the Irish community, I guess, uh, you know, playing folk ballads and rebel songs was, was particularly lucrative at the time. But um, um, the two of you, yourself and Larry, were also in the house band at Malky McCourt's pub, uh, Bells of Hell, Greenwich Village, uh, and you played very different and stuff there was that a reaction to playing all the ballads you got cut off on me just after you said Malachi McCord's that was a hell wasn't right. it okay I'll, I'll try what that again kind of I think it's my my connection is a wee bit ropey so I'll turn off me, me video again there and I'll just ask you that again and yeah. um, so I mean you played with um, Larry um, doing some lucrative stuff in New York Pierce, in the way of uh, Irish folk ballads and rebel songs, I guess you'll probably play in Irish poems. Yeah. Um, well, but yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. What, what I was going to say was that you were also, you had this kind of double life where you were playing in a, a, a pub band called the Bells of Hell, or sorry, uh, in the Bells of Hell, uh, you were the, the house band there, playing yeah. very different stuff. So was that a reaction mm -hmm. to having to play to the, the Irish crowd? Well, we we sort of just thought the whole uh, the the Irish thing was just entirely about making money, you know, and it was as simple as that. You know, we were basically saving up the money from playing the Irish music so that we could stop playing Irish music. Uh, you know, we, <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite honest, though. We put yeah, we put the money we saved up and bought equipment, like you know, so that we could be loud. So we went, we went from kind of like sounding like, uh, you know, some kind of a timid, because we did literally did residencies for a whole month in an Irish bar in New Hampshire or in Massachusetts. Somebody introduced us to this. 
So we were delighted, you know, because we were stone broke. So we, we would go to this place. And Larry knew a lot of Irish folk songs. I didn't know a lot of them, really. I knew them to hear, but I didn't know them to play. I didn't know the words. And, um, and, and we're talking about, like, really common ones, you know, like the, the Boston Burglar and Mary Plowboy and, you know, pure shite. <laughs> so so we, we were really, we were, we were giving them what they wanted, you know. Larry even sang Danny Boy. Um, we sang, in fact, we, we, but we, but we were always kind of caught between two worlds because while we were doing that, we were looking for gigs in CBGBs and places like that. So we were kind of, you know, uh, our plan was buy equipment so that we can play 10 times louder. And as soon as we got 10 times louder, they wouldn't have us in those pubs again, you know, the, the Irish pubs again. So, yeah, it, it was definitely schizophrenic. And both Larry and I are Geminis, so <laughs> maybe we do have two personalities. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we were... It, 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 it was strange, and it was, it was probably... There was one point I remember saying when somebody was talking about signing us, and they said, well, the good thing about you guys is that you know, you can survive without a huge advance from the record company. And uh, I said, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I, I think I'd rather starve and live in the village and keep playing. I think this is a distraction playing these, these Irish folk songs or whatever it was we were doing. And the guy said, you want to try starving? <laughs> well, well, did you did you play? You played at CBGBs, didn't you? Though I did play at CBGBs. Yeah, that must have been so cool, though. Who else was playing there at that time? I know it was very cool. Uh, it it was, it you know these places are never what they seem. You know, it's like uh, CBGBs it had the best sound system in New York City. That's the that's the thing that they had right right off the bat really good sound system. I mean, it was killer. It would knock you out of your seat. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of that. I found when I came to America first, I found the fidelity in, uh, of, of music, audio, the audio equipment and everything was inferior to what I had experienced in Ireland and in England. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously, I suppose, not, not like if you, if you went to Central Park to see somebody hugely popular. But I'm talking about when you went to a club like CBGB's, you know, kind of shitty equipment. But they had, they started off with a really great sound system. That's the first thing they had going for them. But Hilly, the guy that owned it, you know, he's a remarkable person. He, you know, he's a person who had sort of no personality at all. And, <laughs> He kept two dogs, two Irish wolfhounds that followed him around. And the two Irish wolfhounds, you know, didn't have a lot of personality either. You know, <laughs> and they would shit all over the place. So it was like, you know, you have to be careful where you walked. Uh, <laughs> like, and then, you know, then up on the stage, you know, you'd see talking heads with like the lights were on and the sound was on. And all of a sudden you were in a magical place. Wow. So it's quite remarkable. And television. Um, uh, I mean, television and talking heads were 
easily the best of the whole lot, in my opinion. Wow, I'd love to have seen that. When I went to New York, we went to stand outside because I used to, I loved the Ramones when I was young. So um, we yeah. went just just to get a picture outside. So I can remember going. So it was great. I've never been inside though. Yeah, I saw the Ramones play there a few times as well. Oh, uh, jealous. The trouble was the guitar player was a Republican, and I couldn't stand that. <laughs> it was a right wing fiend, you know. And none of the others agreed with him, so it was funny. You know? it's like, uh... But he was rabid, rabid right wing, the guitar player. But they sounded great. And, and you know, again, that was kind of an interesting combination because he was a seasoned guitar player. He was a guy like who had played in Long Island heavy metal bands, you know. He, you know, he could, but he could really play, you know. Right. You know, you know the whole story about the Sex Pistols. You know, they got a guitar player who could really play and a drummer yeah. who could really play, and that made all the difference. You know, it really did. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It- uh, Pierce, uh, I read somewhere that uh, you were actually, um, well, well, yourself and Larry were banned from CBGBs for being too d- demonic. Is that the case? <laughs> yeah, because Larry was into Aleister Crowley. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know anything about Aleister Crowley, and I didn't give a shit about Aleister Crowley either. But Larry wrote the song about Aleister Crowley's uh, uh, woman. I don't know if she was his wife or his his partner called Rose and uh, um, she had this mystique uh, about her apparently this thing called the book of the law was delivered to her through some god and uh, (laughs) and Larry wrote this kind of love song to Rose and I I, I did the arrangement of it and backed him up on it and um, he you know and Someone suggested we start with it. It was a, it was a dirge <laughs> about, about this woman. And uh, so we did. We started with it. And um, the sound man, I just thought he was such a wimp, the sound man, for saying this. I mean, he was a really good sound man. Um, he was doing the sound for all these bands, like, you know, like Television Talking Heads, Suicide, all these really, you know, avant-garde, unusual bands. And then we get up and just sing this ballad basically about Alistair Crowley's girlfriend and um, he said we were demonic <laughs> well you'd look a long way from demonic today Pierce that's for sure sort of thing so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I thought he was a wimp for thinking that way and you know um, again this was how wide open we were we were we, the, the, the uh, area we were covering was really wide and we had an audience that were into science fiction and, and all that stuff, and uh, uh, and through, probably through the Alistair Crowley connection. Okay, uh, yeah. So, sorry, Michael, you go. Yeah, and then I mean, you'd obviously you'd uh, squirreled away all this cash from playing all the the Irish uh, bars, uh, Pierce, and you yourself and Larry invested it in a kit for for the major thinkers, which was definitely more of a new wave kind of sound to to what you were doing there. You had a radio hit with uh, Avenue B and your song uh, Wicklow Hills dates from that time. So you, you must have felt you were gaining confidence uh, with your songwriting. I think with, uh, with, with Wicklow Hills, especially for me, it was a breakthrough of a breakthrough in songwriting because I finally found a way to marry the art 
of singing with a modern sound. Because before that, you know, new wave was very restrictive. You couldn't use any major seven chords. You couldn't use a chord like that, you know. You, know, it, <laughs> uh, you had to, it always had to be fast and raunchy, you know, like, a, you know. They were like chickens with their heads off, you know. And then when I sang, uh, you know, tell everybody I'm gone away for 10 years. You know, and I started with this bass thing. I knew that that was cool, you know, because that reminded me a little bit of New Order. Uh, with the drum machine and that playing together and then singing legato over it. It was a breakthrough for me because I thought, now I, can, I finally can write songs that I want to, to really sing and that uh, will allow me to hold along notes. <laughs> Excellent. So your, your new album, Jerry, oh, sorry, Jerry, I'm thinking about something else there, is called Terrible Good, which I think is a fun fantastic Irish saying. I was I can imagine people saying that. So what what's what's what to you, what does the title mean to you? Like so well it means that really. It, it's just the it you know that double double standard that whole two two meanings, you know, opposite meanings, you know, terrible is obviously a bad thing and good is obviously a good thing. But we say that, don't we? We say something is terrible good. You know, or, or you know deadly. We'll say something is deadly, <laughs> meaning it's good. Well, that, that, that's what I thought when I saw it. I just thought that's a really, I really like that title sort of thing. And, and on this album, one of your, your chief collaborators is obviously Jerry Leonard, who you know people will know from his work with David Bobby. So, how did how did that come about working for him? Like, so or working with him? Um, well, I, it's it's a pretty weird one because like uh, I was uh, doing a residency here in a club with the string quartet, and uh, the sound guy was Terry was Jerry Leonard. And, uh, and it turns out now I know this, but I didn't know this then. He had just come from Ireland and uh, he was just doing anything to survive. Just like I was playing the Irish music, he was a sound, a sound man. And uh, um, we got along really well. And he was, a, he was a very fussy sound man. I mean, we'd spend an hour on the guitar sound. I was like, oh God, <laughs> he was fussier than me. Um, and then, uh, but I didn't know he played guitar. And many years later, uh, I was looking at uh, a TV thing with Bowie and there was Jerry playing the guitar. And I thought, is that really him or am I imagining things? And he sounded incredible. Um, so I called the guy who owned the, the PA system that, you know, had be, that I had been hiring with Jerry doing sound. He said, is that him? And he said, yes, that's him. He's a guitar player. Um, so then the next time I ran into Jerry uh, was about four years ago, I think, doing a memorial concert for T-Rex, um, Mark Boland, you should say. Um, and uh, I guess it was the anniversary of his death or mm -hmm. something. And um, Jerry was playing there with Suzanne Vega because he, he plays with her now. And uh, Suzanne's an old friend of mine, and we we, we were talking, and um, uh, I I said, "Would you like to do an album with me?" And he said, "Yes," uh, but I didn't have the money to make an album with him. I've been making my all my albums. I've been making them on my own for the last 
uh, 20 years uh, on my own label or whatever, like everybody else. And, uh, uh, but I haven't, then I come back here last January and I got offered a record deal with Story Sound Records, which is this, you know, boutique label that um, is just extraordinary in, in that their only principle is to make the album and to do what they can with the album, to get as much attention for the album as possible. And money never comes into it. Well, I'm, well they're not thinking, can they make money? I know this is just... <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's yeah, like like something you would hope existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I, uh, I said, well, I'm interested in making an app with this guy, Jerry Leonard. You know, he's, he's a great guitar player uh, from, from Dublin who's been living here for a while. And, and he, uh, Dick Canetta, who owns Story Sound, was floored. I love Jerry Leonard. You've seen him playing with Rufus Wainwright. Um, and uh, Loudon Wainwright is signed to Story Sound as well. So uh, the connection was there, um, and uh, I called Jerry, and Jerry said, "Great, you know." Then next minute we were in recordings with David Bowie's engineer and uh, Tony Tony Shanahan playing bass, who plays with uh, Patti Smith, and Yuval Lyon, who plays with uh, David Byrne. It was like this all-star band that I wouldn't have put together. Jerry put them together, you know. And um, uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to get them in normal times. This was during, this was last January during the pandemic, so you know they weren't busy either. You know. So <laughs> did you record in New York City then, or where was that recorded? It was recorded in Long Island City, which is New York. Right. It's not, not in Long Island. It's actually in Queens, Long Island right. City. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Recorded in New York. Yeah. So uh, it was just an extraordinary journey, you know, from. Yeah, from that to that. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, from the tracks I've uh, heard so far, the, the teaser tracks that you've had uh, released for a few months now, Pierce, uh, it, you, um, it, it's a different sound really to, to a lot of your uh, solo work over, you know, that kind of self-produced uh, period that, that you've been making albums for. So uh, and you'd said in an interview with Jerry that, you know, you, the, the two of you both, wanted to make a New York album. So, I mean, was that an attitude thing that you were going to try and capture or was it a sound or? What, well, it's, what actually based, it's based on the conversation we've just been having actually uh, about CBGB's Talking Heads television. Patti Smith also was, was performing at that time. Um, uh, Jerry experienced all that too, but we didn't know each other, you know. Uh, and... Um, we both had this feeling for the sound of New York. Uh, it, it, that it, whatever that sound is, I can't really put my finger on what it is, but there's a certain quality to the sound of those bands that we just talked about. And the Ramones, um, uh, I'm not sure what it is. I can't put my finger on what it is. You might be better able to do it. But it's a little bit grounded and earthy, I think. Um, a little bit hard, edgy. There's a there's a sort of a a corner on it. There's something metallic about it, or something like that. Um, I, I think New York sounds very. I've got a playlist on my phone. It's called New York, and it's, it all sounds really genuine and kind of like tough music. You know, it's kind of got. Yeah. A, yes. Yeah. Tough. I think, I think tough's a good word. 
Yes, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not horrible. It's not punk or anything, but it's got that kind of vibe to it. So, but. yeah, no, I think tough is 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 right, and there is something honest about it. Um, that like now, setting out to capture that, of course, is probably a waste of time. You know, it's like you know, you, you probably shouldn't try try to do it even. I we just thought that if we put these musicians together, um, because they all come from that same world, uh, Yuval, maybe, Yuval is, is, I don't know how long he's been in America, he's from Israel, I don't know how long, but I guess he's about the same thing, really. Um, uh, then, you know, we put us all in the room together, and you're probably gonna get something like, something like that. You know, some some kind of a, a mixture that that sounds like that. Okay. Um, especially if um, Jerry and I are thinking that way, at least you know. Okay. Yeah, it's it's an invigorating thing to listen to. I mean, it must have been, you know, uh, a very different experience for you to to make this record effectively. You know, more in a collaborative way than you you're, you're normally like a benevolent dictator, aren't you? You can. Uh, decide what goes where and uh, what's going to be the best arrangement and to have somebody else to bounce off after so long must have been a nice thing to do, was it? Oh, Jesus, it was such a relief. It was great. It really was. In fact, Jerry thinks that I probably gave him too much control. But I got to the... You know, he said that, you know, when we were listening to it and we were putting, it into, putting the running order together, you know, but uh, it's really exactly what I wanted, you know. I, I've gotten so sick of... Uh, doing so many, this is the world we live in now. You do everything on your own, you know, you, you know, you're in a room like this and you do everything on your own. And there is a beauty to that. It's like probably something I really wanted to do all my life. When I was a teenager and I wanted to be a musician, I was making recordings in, you know, in the record shop when there was nobody there with a tape recorder um, uh, with the whole idea that I wish I had my own recording studio, you know, and wish I could do it all on my own. I would like to play all these instruments. Well, I've done that now and I've gotten pretty sick of it. Um, I could probably, I can go back to it again, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, now that I've done this, um, but I really needed to do this. Um, so it was a great relief. And, you know, Jerry is opinionated. He's very, very talented and he's very strong opinions. Um, and in a way, I'm used to being the one with the strong opinions. In a way, I had to kind of uh, think sometimes, if, am I going to fight with them about this or not? Um, uh, you know, I, I, wanna, I want him to have a strong opinion. And so there was tension sometimes. And I honestly think you can't make anything good without that tension. You know, you know, I, I, I can't imagine like the television were a great old laugh in the studio. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm just, I mean, I, I'm imagining uh, Pierce that New York is some sort of fantastic place that you're bumping into Suzanne Vega every day and people on the streets. I'm sure it's not at all like that, actually, but it just sounds like it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not a bumping in on the street. It, like, it's, in fact, you never see. It. Anybody on the street? I don't know oh. where they go. It's like, but you bump into uh, people. But 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 I think your point, Terry, is 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 a good point. Is that it's like it's a small place. Manhattan's a small place. So if I go out tonight and I go like when I did the T Rex thing, you know, if I go to that thing, 
I will meet loads of people that, uh, you know, that are pretty important and they live right here, you know. Um, I met Philip Glass, for instance, because Philip Glass was dating the woman living below me here. Okay. You know, so yes, you know, th that's your point. In, in that like there is a, it's, it is condensed. And, um, you know, uh, you, you, you're really working with all these very, very important people from time to time and they're, they're right there, you know. Yeah. yeah, and uh, speaking of Philip Glass, uh, he, he uh, co-produced your, your first album, um, your, your first solo album for Beggar's Banquet, Pierce. Um, it must have been, actually, you know, listening to the Major Thinkers version of uh, Wicklow Hills and then listening to the version on, on the first album, they're, they're really not dissimilar. You must have been quite pleased with yourself that he didn't want to tinker with it too much. No, I, yes, exactly. Um... Uh, no, <laughs> there's a couple of things. First of, all, <laughs> first of all, when I got into the recording studio with Philip, I found out that he literally knows nothing about recording studios. So, <laughs> so that was a bit of a revelation. Um, no, Philip wouldn't do that in a million years. He wouldn't tamper with what you're doing at all. Um, uh, and you know, by the way, Philip grew up in a record shop too. His, his father had a record shop and he worked in the record shop and, uh, you know, um, kept ordering classical records that, that wouldn't sell in a way, which is what I was doing too, ordering, <laughs> ordering albums that wouldn't sell. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, no, he wouldn't tamper with anything like that at all. His whole thing uh, was to let me do whatever I wanted to do and then to be there for to help in any way I wanted him to help so like I would say Phil will you write a string arrangement for this one and he said sure you know uh, that's that's really how it went yeah and he was like a dog with a bone when you gave him that I guess oh yeah 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 and you know also he knew who to who to call you know I knew I didn't know any string players at that point you know so the key he knew who the best string quartet was, and you know that that stuff. Uh, but I, you know, again, it was the juxtaposition that fascinated me. In that, like, here I'm going to take this guy who literally knows nothing about the kind of music I play. Really, and seriously, he knew nothing about, it, even though his music was electronic, and uh, he he just had no really, you know, he he didn't know. The music of the different bands or anything like that. I mean, you could if you mentioned New Order to Philip, he wouldn't know what you're talking about. You know? um, it's, so he wasn't interested in any of that stuff at all. So I love that idea that, that he's going to just ju juxtapose his style on top of my style, which was the style that I brought from Ireland that was, you know, mixed up with all these influences that we talked about before. Um, and then the experience of playing in a new wave band and everything like that. And, you know, that's what I loved, you know, the idea of that. Um, I knew it would get me a record deal too. And that's another thing is, you know, you can't, getting a record deal is very rarely, like the record deal I just got, I don't think it ever happens like that. Uh, it, you have to work for it. You have to come up with, you have to engineer it so that you're in the right place at the right time. And that means basically you have to be everywhere. Um, so what I knew when, when Philip 
with Philip's name connected to my name, that more about my style connected with Philip's style, really, that I would have interest uh, from record companies. And Virgin Records were, wanted to sign us right away. Um, and it, I could have been with Virgin Records, um, but when I went to Virgin Records with Philip, we met the guy whose name escapes me now. He's pretty, uh, he was way up there, you know. I mean, uh, he was head of the record division, and um, it's probably better I don't say his name because I'm not, <laughs> because uh, he called me. Yeah, so uh, he, he wanted to sign me, and uh, he, when he heard the first tape, he loved it. Then, and he, and he met Philip, he wanted to work with Philip, and he just loved the whole idea. And then when he heard the second tape, he wanted to see me meet him. I had to fly me over right away to meet him. And when I met him, when I went there, flew over to meet him the second time, he had forgotten about the meeting. And uh, I was so pissed off about that. I mean, not that I think that, you know, it's just, you know, I'm coming all this way. And I was like, and then I, I, I go in to meet him and he's throwing his pencil up in the air the whole time. Okay. He had this habit of throwing a pencil up there and catching it. And he said, something's just happened that's kind of changed everything. And I said, really, what's that? Well, I've just been told to take care of Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love your music, and I w- but I was going to give you my entire attention. But now I have to give my attention <laughs> to Phil Collins. I don't think I could do a good job for you. So I was thinking to myself several things. First of all, I was thinking, if you like fucking Phil Collins, you can fuck off. <laughs> I don't want to work with you anyhow. You know, and, and um, uh, Martin Mills from Beggar's Banquet had already offered me a record deal. So I loved Martin Mills. I got along with him so well. I just said, I don't care. You know, I know um, Virgin is a much bigger label and probably I would have been in a different place right now. If if I had been given the Phil Collins treatment, <laughs> yeah. well, you never know. I mean, you could be with Phil Collins. I mean, he, he is playing now, isn't he? With Janice Estelle, isn't he? I think so. I don't know if he's any good on a tin whistle, though, Pierce. Is he? And, uh, yeah, no, I bet he's not able to play the tin whistle. <laughs> uh, and actually, um, you know, Beggars did give you a decent amount of support at that stage. I mean, I remember seeing you in the the Greyhound Pub on Fulham. Palace Road, you won't remember this, obviously, it's such a long time ago, but... Um, You've been some really weird gigs, Michael. Yeah, I certainly have. Do you know what? Uh, another interesting thing about that gig is about a week later, and it was in the middle of the week, uh, there was a punk band played, and uh, the audience got really out of hand and basically trashed the place, and it was the last gig that was ever played there. Wow. Yeah. So you you uh, you got a um, a UK tour out of them. I don't think you you played in the UK much since, have you? Apart from London, and um, then you obviously you got your three albums. Um, and actually, I want to ask you about the third album uh, because your producer on now is Heaven was John Simon. He would have been a very different guy to work from uh, work with than Philip because he was a, a seasoned producer. Had worked with Nana Cohen and Simon Garfunkel and the band. Uh, it, it's beautifully recorded and there's some very you know, atmospheric arrangements on the likes of Thunderstorm and Smokestack View amongst others but was the process of recording that very different from the first two albums? Yeah it was uh, John, John was uh, 
uh, super opinionated, obviously. Uh, uh, and uh, I think, let me think about it. I think that was the first time I really worked with a producer, actually. You know, the first time was with Philip, as I said, he wasn't a producer really. Second album I did co-produce with Simon Boswell, who was a producer, but I co-produced with him and was absolutely co-production. Uh, but with John Simon, it was uh, somebody who really had the concept of, had a concept of what it was going to sound like and what it was going to be, uh, could write superb string arrangements. He was a great piano player. Uh, uh, he did vocal arrangements. Uh, you know, he was a, it, it was a strong person. I was dealing with a very strong person. Um, so it, it, again, lots of tension. <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was, it, it was, you know, strenuous, you know, at times. Um, but, uh, um, and I even thought maybe it wasn't good enough. You know, I remember thinking sometimes that it's just that he wasn't uh, hooked in enough to rock music, you know, that he, he, you know, that he was sort of a little bit wimpy or something maybe about it. But when the album was done, it, the reviews and everything were just like over the hill, were completely superior to anything else I had gotten. And the, the reaction was much greater uh, to that album than anything else I had done. And so it just shows, you know, you don't really know what you're doing when you're doing these things. You're not, you're yeah. not it's not the magical world you think it is when you're looking at it. Don't break the illusion, Pierce. Please don't do that, like. So. <laughs> I imagine you, tomorrow you're going for lunch with Bruce Springsteen. Tomorrow, you know that's what I think. <laughs> but, I already told him I can't do it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, so, <laughs> be there. I cancel. Send them my way. I'll be grand. Like so, so are, are you gonna? What's the plans to tour the new album then, or are you gonna get some gigs in? Or? Well, you know, touring is like it's a very tricky thing. Completely, I don't know really. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're just coming to a point now where we're allowed to play anything, any gigs and stuff. So, you know, the, the I don't really know the answers to that question. That really, Terry, I don't know. Right. Um, uh, I definitely I am ready to do it, and uh, I've uh, I, I would say you know that. The touring thing will be in the summer, you know. Right. It'll be a while because you can't book gigs, proper gigs, without be giving them about two or three months leeway. You know, sure. you need it. You know, and um, the gigs I had in Ireland, like Christmas time, they just got cancelled. You know, I mean, because the government just decided overnight yeah. they didn't do it. So uh, I'm presuming now it's going to open up. Uh, but in the meantime, my plan is. You know, the gig at Joe's Pub, we're going to stream it. Uh, and I'm going to have that band, the original band, oh, at Joe's Pub on Mar March 17th here in New York. Also, uh, Patrick's Day. Yeah. Oh, good timing. Yeah. It's a, it, and Joe's Pub, you, you guys won't know, probably won't, don't know it, I don't, I, but Joe's Pub is a superb venue. Uh, it's like uh, Rolling Stones says one of the top five venues in the country. It's a great sound system, great lights, the whole thing. It is a wonderful venue. Um, and um, it's called Joe's Pub because it's called after Joseph Papp. And Joseph Papp started the public theater 
you know, he's a famous uh, guy in the art world here in New York. Um, so that's going to be streamed, and I'm going to have the band with Tony Shannon, and Jerry Leonard, and uh, oh, brilliant, uh, So I'm inclined to think for the time being that we're going to have to do as much of that as we can, you know, streaming. Uh, or but we are doing that's a professional stream. They're, they're with three cameras and direct sound. You know, it's going to be. You know. and, and can people buy a ticket for that virtually, a virtual ticket? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's going to be available, absolutely. You know, I, I haven't really announced that yet, but that's what we are going to do. Oh, I'll have to keep an eye out for that, that might be excellent. Uh, well, Pierce, it, you know, if you if you do plan to come over to Scotland, and I mean, I know you've done these parlour gigs in, in Ireland before where you've, you've played in fans' front rooms and stuff like that, that. I dare say myself and Terry could have a whip round and have yourself and Jerry and the lads in to entertain us. <laughs> I don't know about Jerry and the lads. Would you be up for having just me? Of course. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, I'm, 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 get Jerry and the lads to come to Scotland. Well, it's not time. Yeah. We could do the Edinburgh Festival and, um, you know. Yeah, do residency at the Edinburgh Festival. And well, are you guys in Edinburgh then? Well, well, I am part of the time. And, and I'm in the northeast. I'm in Aberdeen. You so. can sleep me couch if you want. <laughs> oh, you know, that, in the summer, that sounds like it's something that could happen, lads. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> no, because, uh, yeah, I mean, I it. yeah, because it's summertime. Yeah, you got Edinburgh Festival. It's not, the weather's a bit better. I mean, yeah, be, that could be all right. That would be great. Yeah, it would be nice if you, if you get some, you know, the festival, you know, I don't have an agent in England now, so I don't really know like, uh, uh, really how to do. I'd have to get that together, I suppose, to do festivals. Festivals in Ireland are governed by promoters. Yeah, uh, I suppose it's the same year, so. Yeah, and they don't pay you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they pay the headliner. <laughs> you do for the love of it. Thanks for thanks. So, but uh, yeah, but uh, anyhow, I'd love to come to Edinburgh though, or Aberdeen. I've never been to Aberdeen. I've been to Edinburgh. I opened for the Stranglers. Did you? Oh, in 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 Edinburgh. That's really funny because um, we interviewed JJ Burnell from the Stranglers a couple of weeks ago, and I saw him in Aberdeen a week past. Yesterday, a week ago, they played in Aberdeen. They were great. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was very funny. Opening for the Strangers was just like... Because the audience that they had were entirely like Strangers fans. You know, they didn't want anything else. It's what what it seemed, you know. And um, uh, so at first when we opened for them, they would would say, get off. They would boo us. Then we came on stage, you know, it's like... uh, 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 and then after a while, they sort of got used to us. And then one day it dawned on me, you know, I have, I have, I can bring ten free people to this gig. You know, you, you know, you, you get ten you passes, you know. But I've no, I don't have relatives anywhere, so I would go to the first ten guys standing online for the of Strangler fans, and I'd say, you want to be on the guest list? And the, you know, they'd say yes. So they'd be in the front row, and they would turn the whole. Crowd all the, all the, the rest of them in my favor, you know, like, you know, oh, give them a chance. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> bribery. Excellent. It was bribery, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Um, Excellent. 
but this, yeah, it was uh, it was always amusing because like the the keyboard player with the Stranglers, his wife would sit side stage drinking tea on a, a table with tea a teapot on it, like and I don't know if there was anything else, maybe a sandwich or something, I don't know. But she literally said that, and he would pop off stage between songs and sit with her for a minute and have a sip of tea and then come back on again. <laughs> that's very that's very rock and roll, isn't it? So. Yeah. Oh, that's whoa! How are you doing, love? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, though. Well, look, thanks for your time today, Peter. That's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed our chat today. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you guys. Pierce, we look forward to hearing the rest of the, the album. Uh, it's called Terrible Good and it will be terrible good and it's out on February the 25th and I will certainly be stocking that in my record shops excellent keep me a copy of my goal <laughs> yes thank right. you lads thank Thanks, you Pierce. thank you very much when, when you're when you're sleeping on my couch uh, Pierce you can sign them you can sign Terry's one as well obviously <laughs> All right. absolutely All right. we'll see you soon thank you right. thanks now. again bye bye well Terry what did you make of uh, that <laughs> So, so I have to be brutally honest here. So before we interviewed Pierce Turner, I was not madly aware. I wasn't terribly aware of his work. So and I was a bit nervous about the chat with him because I thought, but the fact that he was sitting there on his piano in New York, um, I, I so enjoyed it, actually. I mean, he's a very amiable chap. I've got into his music since that. So, you know, um, I can think of nothing negative to say about the guy whatsoever. And the fact that he has breakfast with Bruce Springsteen, I don't think he does. <laughs> um, but, you know, the whole, it was a, a very interesting interview, I thought. You know, he, he just the, the album and the, you know, the, um, the man from David Bowie's guitarist, how it all came together. But, uh, yeah, great chat. Yeah. I mean, um, I've seen him uh, live a number of times over the years. And, uh, you get a bit of that repartee between um, the songs and yeah. he, he carries on this conversation with people in the audience. And a lot of the indoor gigs that he does, um, he actually, basically he's got a, one of these uh, radio headsets on and um, a radio um, transmitter for his guitar. And he basically walks around and sings songs in people's faces and, and gets up on, on the tables in front of them as well. So he's got... Yeah like a very um, good communication with his audience. Uh, no, I, I watched some, I found some live videos on YouTube and stuff, and I watched them, and you're right, that's what he is very sociable like that. And it kind of reminds me a bit of the guy Craig Finn from The Hold Steady, mm. who's constantly having a banter with the crowd all the way through and a very good communication with his fans. And I, I love the fact that he said he does, it to, you know, he went to New York first, he did the, the, the traditional Irish music sort of bars and stuff, to which he then paid the rent and then to get to do the stuff that he really wanted to do. So... Um, which was which was very very interesting and um, but no I I'm gonna listen to some of his new album Terrible Good and it, it absolutely is it's a very Irish term that Terrible Good isn't it though so uh, it, it certainly is it's fierce good altogether fierce. <laughs> so the ones I like I like that Love of Angels which I think was a single I listened to that this morning and like I said to you before it, it reminds me of the like, Ian Hunter's kind of vocal style but. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure a lot of people would have would have listened to him over this side of the water, but I think it's definitely worth checking out. I think so. Yeah, uh, I mean, he the um, a lot of the tunes are really elevated by mm -hmm. the, the arrangements, aren't they? I mean, you've got uh, uh, some great guitar um, uh, on there from Jerry Leonard, so he's got you know uh, a lot of. Um, 
kind of grit and um, yeah. you, you know really um, nuance playing on other tracks. There is one um, rearrangement of a an older um, song of Pierce's, uh, Stephen, which, which was originally called Stephen's Preparing to to Leave. And it, it, it's, um, you know, really good arrangement um, and brings the song to life very well. And I think this will maybe open up a new audience for him. Um, yeah. the, the, the songs are probably a little bit less intimate than they are on his, uh, uh, for want of a better word, solo albums, you know, that there, there's, uh, there's more kind of going on in them in terms of the um, uh, the rockiness of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, I, I kind uh, of thought I, it, was I more, it is definitely more upbeat. I think it's kind of more, you know, post-COVID, you know, getting out playing gigs again, sort of happiness. And definitely, he's going to be, yeah. going to be live streaming a show once at Patrick's Day, I believe. So. Uh, yeah. as well so i don't know you can sure you can find the link for that somewhere it's a pub what's the name of the pub you mentioned though i can't remember now it's a very famous pub in, in uh, joe's pub joe's that's pub. right yeah yeah okay um and uh, another thing we've been both been listening to this week um terry is the new ep release from crying bin and uh leon bridges this is their second collaboration so uh texas moon has followed texas sun what's the verdict on it well i would call it crumbin Possibly. Yeah. So and I hadn't realised this, that they're from Houston, Krungbin, and he's from Fort Worth. So they're both sort of n- natives of Texas sort of thing. And you're right, it's follow up to Texas sun. So it's a bit more mellow, I would say, for sure. It's almost like it's two halves of the same album, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. Sort of three tracks on each side. Um, I really like the song Chocolate Hills, which is a crack it on there. But his voice is so melodic. Um, but it is very much kind of the... The moon side of the, of the of the day sort of thing, a bit more laid back, but very melodic and lovely, beautiful instrumentation on it. Like, yeah, uh, the guitar playing is fantastic on it, and there's quite a bit of pedal steel. It, it just evokes an atmosphere, doesn't it? Yeah. Really, but it, it kind of does make you think. Well, you know, I mean, obviously they're not going to release it. Hopefully, they'll do another album together. You know, as a full kind of album it would, be, it would be great. I think, but if you certainly listen to them back to back. They're quite nice sort of bedfellows, I think, for us two together. So, yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah. So I think we both uh, recommend that. Um, Terry, you have been uh, across the water um, since we, we last did one, and um, you have been to a gig. Yes. So I went to see – so we're in, we're in Belfast for a night, so I Googled what was on, and um, fortunately we dismissed Texas that were playing. Um, but Tom O'Dell was playing at the Ulster Hall, which was his first gig uh, post-lockdown. Um, so I bought a ticket, went along. Um, it was the day, actually, that regulations changed in Northern Ireland. So um, masks were d- done, um, COVID passports were supposedly done, although they did check them going in. Um, so I took my missus along to the Ulster Hall, which, if anyone ever goes, it's got a lovely plaque outside for Rory Gallagher, which is great to see. Um, it's almost a mirror image of the music hall, although it's not quite as deep in the, in the balcony. Um, the sound is better than the music hall. I think it's not quite as echoey. It's a beautiful building. And um, they had a young guy on sort of like doing a little acoustic set beforehand. And then Tom O'Dell, who I wasn't sure about. I mean, I liked some of the songs, um, but it came on and it was not what I expected. Um, he had a guitarist, a bass player and a drummer, and he was playing the piano, a big, massive sort of grand piano in the corner, quite bluesy, a lot of screaming and shouting, but very emotive, seemed to really enjoy his first gig and the, the tour the night in Belfast was the first night of his world tour so he's going all around the world to September so he really seemed to be sort of giving it all and um, my wife was 
pleasantly shocked as well, I think, by A, the number of songs he knew, and B, how good he was. And uh, But there was a there was a kind of a One Direction front 10 rows, though. There were a lot of screaming going on, which was a bit bizarre. And then for, for, further back he went, there was obviously a sort of more mature audience. But uh, no, I have to say, it was great. Really enjoyed it. Um, the Belfast, as you always find, Irish and Scottish bands are always really into it. So, yeah, it was great. Good, good. Okay, um, so uh, before we wrap up, we need to mention a uh, major re-release uh, that's yeah. happening on Friday. Uh, the Godfather is 50 years old, Terry. That, I mean, I, I obviously didn't see it when it came out, thinking this, not quite on maybe a few years later sort of thing, but uh, I mean, parts one and two, fantastic. Part three, never my favourite, but apparently they've released a new version of part three about a year ago. Which I've not watched yet, but I mean, it's a fantastic, sprawling, such a great movie. Like, so. I mean, yeah. there's so many iconic bits. I mean, the horse in the bed and so on. And it's got uh, it, it, it's a it's a good story. It's well told, uh, really well acted, and and the whole thing um, kind of evokes the era very well. I mean, I was thinking of that compared to maybe one of the movies that would have, uh, I suppose, um, uh, you know only happened because uh, of The Godfather, The Untouchables, where oh, when yeah. you see it now, it actually looks quite dated because, you know, Giorgio Armani did all the wardrobe and all that. I mean, people didn't wear clothes like that back back then, you know? <laughs> uh, it's like a bit of an 80s style to them, but uh, I, I think there is a kind of um, truth to um, The Godfather that's maybe missing from some of the... Um, uh, the the movies have followed from it, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it, it's the whole, the whole, uh, it shows you the consequences of being yeah. involved. But the whole bit with De Niro, you know, which was you know, and the use of Italian language all the way through large sections was, you know, and it's still made, you know, still very successful movies, you know, almost art house in its direction and how they went. But uh, I think the, the Godfather, the first two parts, are certainly kind of films. I don't think you'd ever tire of watching. You could rewatch them and see bits you haven't seen before. So, I mean, I love the bit where you know Al Pacino finds the gun in the toilet of the restaurant, comes out, shoots a guy, and sort of walks off, sort of thing. And uh, there's just so many good bits into it where he goes to Italy and his wife gets gets get killed in the car bomb and so on. I hope that's not a spoiler for anyone, by the way. But <laughs> I, I doubt it. Uh, I, doubt I don't it. think anybody will be <laughs> will you know, be unfamiliar. You know, with the line he sleeps with the fishes has been used several times, numerous times since, with a lot of people. So. Yeah, uh, or um, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. <laughs> actually, someone said that at work this morning, actually. So that, that, that was said this morning. Maybe you can make an offer you can't refuse. Didn't say it quite the same threatening way, though, but uh, it was equally. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm tempted to go back because, I mean, obviously, you, uh, well, I, I think it's got a, a nationwide release. So I think you, you, you'll find it. Uh, at a local cinema in Aberdeen somewhere, maybe the maybe the Belmont will have it. I would I would think so. I might say most most of these places probably the Belmont will have sort of thing. For, I think for something like fifty years of that would be would be excellent. So mm. I might see if I can grab some time. Really. The problem is it's quite a long commitment to watch any one part of it at a time. So uh, it's a bit like you know the commitment of listening to Four Idle Hands podcast, Terry. You know you, you need to put in the hard yards. It? And it's not quite the same as the Godfather, but I have just started watching Piggy Blinders. Oh, from the start. From the start, I never yeah. watched it before, so I watched episode one the other night. And it's got a bit of a Godfathery feel to it, I guess, I suppose to, to a certain degree. But uh, 
I've got 35 episodes to watch before Sunday, so I'm not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> Don't think you're going to make it. <laughs> no, as long as I get the, the, the gist of it. Although I was confused at the fact that they're not Irish, but they're in Birmingham. I thought they were Irish at the start, but they're not. But anyway, so. But uh, I don't know if you ever watch Piggy Blinders, but it's very good, though. Uh, no, no, I've, I've not watched it either. So, um, yeah, yeah, maybe that's, I can look forward to that when I, uh, whatever, break a leg or get a hip replacement or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. I think that's it, Terry. I think that's it. I think your your line is a bit ropey, so um, I think uh, we should leave it until the next time. See you soon. See you.